0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music,
1: and more. About 20 years ago, I was working in house for a big electrical retailing company in Britain. And one of the things that I was responsible for was corporate communications. So sending announcements out to the media on behalf of the company.
2: This is Hamish.
1: Hi, I'm Hamish Thompson and I'm a publicist. One of the things that happened on a regular basis was that there was this friction that developed between the board of directors and the communications team. And the friction was mostly around the use of language.
2: And that's because the board had a very particular vocab they wanted to use.
1: And obviously the job of the communications team is to say things in an interesting, compelling, accessible way. Uh, The trouble is that the board, because they're they're powerful people, um, tended to rule the roost. And so we'd end up saying things like disambiguating the customer experience journey, when in fact, what we were trying to say was, making things easier for our customer. And unfortunately, because the board is really powerful, they get their way. So I was faced with this conundrum. How do we resolve this this issue?
2: Now, Hamish is the perfect example of what we call a friction fixer.
1: Yes, I would call myself a friction fixer.
2: You'll hear a little bit later on what Hamish did. So what exactly does it take to be a friction fixer? Well, I think there's actually very few of us It all starts by being a friction detective.
3: I love the idea of a friction detective. In fact, maybe we should have called the book that. That is just a wonderful title. I'm stealing that immediately.
2: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, we're going to figure out what we can do about friction at work, whether it be in our systems or relationships, and how you can be a friction fixer yourself.
3: We kept running into leaders, organisational designs, they weren't aware or they didn't care of what we call about their cone of friction, how their decisions made things unwittingly difficult for people.
2: This is Robert Sutton. Okay, if I call you Bob?
3: Please, Lisa.
2: Okay, Bob Sutton, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Stanford Business School. He and his research partner and co-author, Professor Huggy Rao, have been researching workplace friction for seven years for what they called the Friction Project, which is now a book. And it turns out friction is everywhere. Well, let's start with the email that broke the friction camel's back. (laughs) (laughs) What happened, Bob? Oh, so,
3: you know, I'm a professor at this uh, giant uh, fancy university university. And uh, one of our senior executives, and this was during the depth of the pandemic, she sent um, every Stanford faculty member, so that's about 2,200 of us, a 12,066-word email with a 7,500-word attachment inviting, I'm not kidding, all 2,000 of us to devote a Saturday to brainstorming about our new sustainability school on Zoom. Um, and if you just sort of multiply, to me, what, what this is, is I would call this friction blindness that that she meant well. But really,
2: was that a good use of 2,000 people's time? So you said there's friction blindness, but it also sounds like a huge cone of friction too. Tell me more about what the cone of friction means and looks like.
3: Oh, uh, ab- yeah, absolutely. And by the cone of friction is just the the number and kinds of impact that your behavior has on customers colleagues, if you're a government employee, citizens residents, so just just having an awareness so it means being aware of the interactions so so to me and huggy and I that being a trustee is is not it's not just a, about doing things as efficiently as possible it's the way it feels to go through the experience
2: unfortunately, it does sound familiar, and I'm sure everyone's has examples of friction in their workplace, but friction at work isn 't necessarily all bad though no it?
3: no 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 so so there that there 's all sorts of evidence that when people do creative work that it 's not an efficient process that may be less inefficient. You might be able to prototype more quickly or kill bad ideas, but it 's a it's a fundamentally messy, inefficient process. And if you just, just an example, if you look at uh, what it takes to develop a product, it's usually hundreds of iterations and lots of failed prototypes along the way. That's just the way that the process works.
2: Bob, how did you first get interested in friction?
3: The way that we got interested in friction is in in 2014, we did a book called Scaling Up Excellence. And there are all these companies that we worked with when they were little. Uh, so I, I worked with uh, Facebook, I guess now Meta, Google. We were we actually worked with them in the early days, Salesforce, some of these big U.S. tech giants. And then I know a little bit since you're in Australia about Atlassian. I've sort of been involved with them. Atlassian actually is, ex- I, and I'm not just saying this to kiss up because you're in Australia, extremely well-ran company and very good about figuring out ways to grow without getting too frictionful. But if you turn to, you know, their American counterparts, Google is sort of exhibit one. They've gotten so large and so complex that there's always a risk that even though founders, their goal is to get bigger, bigger, scale, baby, scale, they end up with this big dumb company that they can't believe that they've Mm. helped create. So I'm not sure that it's gotten generally worse. But there, but some of the big tech companies that used to um, pride themselves in being nimble have have gotten worse.
2: Well, if I am listening and thinking to myself, look, I would like to become a friction fixer. Uh huh. What is this role, and can I do it even though I might not have any ostensible power or authority in any aspect of my work?
3: Oh, oh, I love that. Well, I think there's actually very few of us. Let's just take out everything from a, a, a frontline worker at uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles, you know, where, where we, we view our license here, at McDonald's, at places like that. You can just start out and ask yourself, what's my cone of friction? Who do I have influence over? And am I making things harder or easier for them?
2: Wealth advisor Kate McCallum has a great exercise she does with her team to get rid of friction points. We did an activity called brain writing,
0: where the entire team is asked to write as many things that they can think of on individual post-it notes that are high-frequency activities that they undertake or high-impact activities, so they have a big impact on either the team or our clients, and to identify anything at all that they thought was unnecessary, annoying, or unproductive.
2: They came up with heaps of ideas, they posted them on a wall, grouped them together to figure out the main friction areas.
0: We then put those onto an impact ease matrix so that we could find the ones that were the easiest to fix, regardless of their impact. Simple things that could be done very, very quickly. The outcome of all of this the team feels lighter. They feel empowered to actually identify the things that are annoying or unproductive or unnecessary. It's become part of our team lexicon and it's a
2: standard agenda item on our 90 day plans. Love that. And there's a fab term that Bob has for this practice. He calls it the sludge audit. You'll find out how you can do a sludge audit yourself later this episode. One story Bob likes to share about a friction fixer is a recent experience he had at the DMV.
3: And I don't know what it's like in Australia to deal with the Department of Motor Vehicles to register your car and to go visit, but in most places of the world, it's a very unpleasant experience. The thing that amazed me, and I lived in California almost my whole life, in going to the DMV, it, it'd be sort of like, you know, do you want to hit your head against the wall for 20 minutes or an hour or something?
2: So you were dreading it.
3: Oh, I went to register. It was my mother had recently passed away, and I was dealing with her title change, so I had to go in person. And I got there, and there, and there were um, 60 people in line in front of me at 7.40 in the morning. And it's like, oh, this is going to be... A terrible day. This is gonna be horrible. And then this kind of magical creature, he walked out at 7:40 a.m. in the morning and he asked us why we were there. He gave us the right form. Some people he said, I'm really sorry, you can't get your passport renewed here and things like that. And by eight o'clock when the DMV opened, we all walked in and I was out in 8:15. Wow. At 8:15, because and and, and that was true for all of us. So essentially, what to me, what he had done is a, a frontline worker within his cone of friction. He did what he could to make things easier rather than harder for people. And and, and I thought this was sort of just a one-off um, experience, and the, this isn't in the book, since Huggy and I continue the Friction Project. and And now we're in conversation with the people who lead the Department of Motor Vehicles. They see themselves... As trustees of citizens and residents' time, mm. and they're trying to figure out ways to save our time and 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 so I like that everything from the the dude who runs the Department of Motor Vehicles to the frontline worker in Silicon Valley, all of them they they, they are seeing themselves as being sensitive to uh, being trustees of others' time.
2: I'm going to circle back on a concept. We were talking about good and bad friction. And so really one of the starting points is friction forensics. So we're trying to figure out is it good, is it bad, otherwise known as sludge audits. Right, yeah, sludge audits, yes. Should we talk about this maybe using the Google hiring policy as an example of being a friction detective? Should we do that, Ooh. Bob?
3: Oh, let's talk about though I love this example. So, so uh so in terms of being a, a friction, I love the idea of a friction detective. In fact, maybe we should have called the book that that is just a one a wonderful title. I, I'm sealing that immediately. Yeah, go for it. But but in terms of being a friction detection, we, we talk about there's there's various ways to do sort of objective measures of how much time people are spending in meetings, how much time they're spending in email, how many different apps. So there are things you can count, but some things are so obvious it's ridiculous. And uh, Google, which was started in a, actually in a little trailer at Stanford University, just a half a mile from where I'm sitting right now. And, and, and so Larry and Sergey, in the early days when they built Google, they had this philosophy that they would just interview the heck out of people, five, 10, 15, as many as 25 times. And it was because they wanted the early members of the company to be great at their jobs, writing code or something, and also have great leadership potential to build the company. And this is a great concept, but it becomes something that's ingrained in the organizational culture that gets spread too far. So that, so these traditions continued and uh, it was taking forever to hire people at Google and was driving they were driving each other nuts and also driving away the best candidates who were usually going to Facebook during that period. And so Laszlo Bach who was head of, they call it people operations, essentially head of HR for about eight years. So he noticed this problem and to fix it, he came up with such a almost like idiotically simple solution that worked, which I sort of love a simple rule, which was if you as a Google employee were going to do more than four job interviews to select a candidate, you just had to write him for written permission. So it's a little bit of a speed bump, a little bit of friction. And uh, Lazo and we fact check with him, this with him so many times, and he said, yes, yes, this really happened, and yes, yes, it really worked. So friction fixing is not always that efficient. Sometimes it's a long, arduous, complicated process because I, you know, I, I, fixing the process in, in a bank or the Department of Motor Vehicles we've talked about, there's a lot of steps in it. But this was one that was a relatively simple fix.
2: Speaking of friction detectives, let's go back to Hamish Thompson that we heard from the start of the episode. He became a friction fixer when he noticed the tense tussle between the company's board members and the communications team and how they were writing press releases.
1: The problem with a press release that's full of jargon um, is that it tends to be a document that's written by committee. And the problem with documents that are written by committee is that they are... The most expensive and worthless documents a business can own. Because everybody puts all of their time and effort into fighting over whether we use this word or that word. And fundamentally, you know, communication is about speaking with a with a clear and accessible voice. And you get the opposite happening. You get people weighing in with, you know, why don't we change, change that sentence to uh, what was there? Was one example actually. This guy said once that he wanted to get a line in there which was. We want to re-engineer the very DNA of this business. And there's a sort of a Baroque pomposity that kind of tends to feed into some of these things. And, you know, for a communications professional, you know, you can just imagine the journalist opening it and thinking, I can't be bothered to translate this. So what I decided to do was write out to as many journalists and editors and correspondents as I could as I could think of and ask them to send me the words, the buzzwords that they hated the most. And I put them all into this big database and I developed this thing called the Buzzsaw, which is this online tool. You take a document, you paste the contents into it, you press buzz it, and it checks it against all of these, I guess there must be, Four or five thousand buzzwords in the database now that journalists loathe, and the beauty of this was that you know a document would come back and it had all, all the red lines through all the all the worst worst offenders, but it completely took the friction out of a conversation because suddenly it wasn't about corporate communications trying to assert their their power. It wasn't about the board holding sway because you know they're more important people. It was really a case of journalists inputting anonymously on the document and it led to a much more favourable and beneficial outcome.
2: And here's a cautionary tale about when friction can impact our relationships, not just systems at work.
1: Hello, my name is Yushi Gunayer and I'm a coach in the corporate workplace. One time I experienced workplace friction was when I never really voiced what it is that I was expecting or how would I be wanted um, to be rewarded. I just hoped that they would know. I think what it really did for me was I was not ready to see the positive in that person. I was just sitting there and constantly looking for negative things. So anything little would trigger me.
2: Now, there's one massive thing that can get in the way of friction fixing, and it's called power poisoning. You'll find out about it next. And it seems to me, Bob, some of the time it's actually just stopping to say, why are we doing it this way? Is there a reason? Or is it something that somebody did a long time ago, and we are just continuing it on like little followers without actually putting it through our filter of why are we doing this? Uh,
3: ab- yeah, absolutely. And and one of the great things, th- this is researched by uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And one of the great things about Danny Kahneman, as Danny Kahneman shows, is is we human beings are so good at just training things into habits and they become completely mindless. And then pretty soon we're, well, we're doing twenty five job interviews because we've always done twenty five job interviews, and maybe this is a dumb thing that we should stop so so yeah uh, but but mindfulness I mean that, that's something that you know we all talk about, but that's I think that's why we need people in life who uh, give us bad news that we can listen to so what one of my favorite CEOs we interviewed in the course of the project, and she was a really good friction fighter, but she did something I still can't believe at least in every office i've ever worked in there's like an office gossip who's always complaining about everything uh and so what she did was she moved the office gossip's office right next to hers <laughs> and, and and would always check in with her to to get the bad news early so she could fix it and and then for the leaders out there if you can stand being around this person <laughs> there is there is another advantage to it which is that you can sort of influence the gossip because they're your friends, so it's not quite so nasty to you. So she said, I both learn things to fix, and I also fix the narrative to make me look maybe better than I really deserved. So so I love that. This is a great example.
2: Now, sometimes you need to go to the system level, which requires a leader. So tell us about Dr. Melinda Ashton's gross project.
3: Oh, Oh, doctor, she's one of my... She's like a she's a so we've been in contact her with quite a bit. Okay, so uh, everywhere in the world, in Australia, is my understanding too, there's this thing called electronic health records, electronic medical records. So uh, when you go see the doctor. They don't look you in the eye or the nurse, they spend the whole time typing on the screen because the records are so important. And, and this is it's very well documented. Actually, in the UK and the United States, other places too, that about 25 to 35% of the time that healthcare workers spend is actually dealing with the electronic health records, not with us as humans. And mm-hmm. and so it really and there are reasons to have electronic health records. So Dr. Uh, Melinda Ashton, she was head of quality of the largest hospital system in Hawaii. It's Hawaii Pacific is the name of the healthcare system. And so what they did in in, in this system, was called Get Rid of Stupid Stuff. And it's published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the most prestigious journal. And what they did was that they had people suggest issues that were getting in the way of slowing them down in the electronic health system. And these were not like, they weren't throwing the whole thing out, but a lot of times it was eliminating clicks. So, I mean, just one example, there was one click that every nurse, every nurse assistant had to make when they made rounds to check on patients. And they eliminated, there used to be two, they eliminated one that saved 24 seconds. And when you added it up, this was like a couple thousand hours a month throughout the whole system.
2: How rare is it for leaders to be the friction fixers, Bob? Ooh.
3: So when we started this project, I would have said, oh, God, they're so insensitive, blah, 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 blah. But, but, you know, the thing that really strikes us is is just there's some pretty good leaders out there. And and, and I'll give you two completely different ones that I really admire. One is Satya Nadella at Microsoft, the, one of the ways that, so, so we're talking about efficiency sometimes, but a lot of times there's friction in systems because people don't want to collaborate and they view one another as enemies. So, one of the reasons that Microsoft had so much trouble developing products for years was that, and they were literally rewarded for backstabbing. It was kind of famously, and this is not like obscurely known. Satya talks about this now openly. And so, by changing the reward system, so that people who help others get ahead and help products go through the system, as opposed to viewing uh, your colleague as your enemy. But, but that's a case of a leader who really has transformed a, a company in, in the, the degree to which the value has gone up. I, the, the last time I looked, they were the most valuable company in, in the world.
2: But it's not all sunshines and rainbows. Some leaders can get what Bob calls power poisoning
3: there's really great evidence that that when people are powerful or feel powerful like really not good things happen to their brains they they tend to focus more on their own needs less on the needs of others and act like the rules don't apply to them so this is where they sort of get like this friction blindness where they start getting oblivious to what's going on and they'll heap friction on people
2: so what then is the antidote to power poisoning? And what does it have to do with hippos and elephants? Oh,
3: hippos and <laughs> elephants. Ah, you got a Huggy Rao, our friend. So there's lots of, there's lots of antidotes to, to power poisoning, uh, f- finding ways to, to be more humble. Uh, uh, the way Huggy puts this, and it's a sort of beautiful thing, is that don't be a hippo. So a hippo has a big mouth and little ears be an elephant with big ears and sort of like, you know, like a little mouth. And we did this thing in a design school class based on Huggy's hippo and elephant thing and some other stuff he said where we had uh, the the CEOs of the five startups. They were all first-time CEOs. And And what we had our students do was to assess how much they talked versus how much their team talked in meetings. And then, and this was very powerful, the percentage of questions they asked Versus statements they made. Mm. And and to me, that's one of the the kind of things that a a good leader does to dampen their power poisoning uh, and and increases their awareness too.
2: And if you're feeling like friction fixing is a little too overwhelming for you right now, Bob has a simple place to start.
3: I had this amazing experience of interviewing this guy. His, His name's Todd Park. He's famous in the States. He started a company called Devoted Health. And what Devoted Health, the concept is that older Americans, 65 or older, it provides sort of one-stop shopping to help them navigate and get the health insurance and other health care that they need. He spends the first 15 minutes talking about love. And I said, "Wait, wait, you're talking about love? And he said, well, we start with the concept that when somebody calls one of our agents, that the agent is supposed to assume that they treat our client, the patient, with the same love as their mother or their father. That's our design principle. I I just love this idea of love as as the place to start with friction fixing. But but I, I do think that if you start with that notion that you actually care about the people that you're trying to help, that you would make better decisions about uh, what to make hard and what to make easy. And sometimes it might be making things impossible for someone you love to do something really stupid or unlawful. So, so, you know, love isn't all about making everything easy, right? So so I like the idea of starting with love.
2: Bob, thank you so much. I love
3: your guts. Oh, thanks Lisa. It's really fun to talk to you.
2: Bob Sutton, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Stanford Business School and co-author of The Friction Project. And thanks to our This Working Lifers for sharing their stories on how they tackled friction in their jobs. Hamish Thompson, Kate McCallum and Yushika Nia. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson, mixed by Matthew Crawford. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the
1: ABC Listen app.